So welcome to episode number one of Disrupting Your Business. I'm your host, Stephen Burns, and today we're going to kick things off with an interview with Ram Iyer from the Business Thinking Institute. Uh, we're going to start out slow where we'll really dig into his background to understand you know, what about the uh, events in his life really got him to the point today where he's headed up the Business Thinking Institute, uh, talk about failure, why we don't succeed. Uh, he's got this concept that I really like called a hard thinking problem. And he'll touch on that a little bit and how it's impacted his future. He talks a little bit about the silent killers of success, which uh, we should all know about. And then about 30 minutes into the interview, because it is a long-form interview in this situation, he gets right into what's going on at the Business Thinking Institute. And it does also touch on the concept of how we all define success. So I hope you all enjoy my very first interview and apologize up front. This is a new technique uh, for me to be an interviewer, and I'm not yet skilled at it, so I suspect as we move forward in our series that uh, I'll do a better job with each subsequent interview. So let's get started. So I'm here with Ram Iyer, president of the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton. So Ram, thanks for joining me on uh, the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no. Um, when I first learned about you, you were, I believe, um, CEO of Mid-Market Institute. And I guess yeah. you were doing some pretty compelling stuff there for the SMB uh, segment. Mm -hmm. But uh, before that, I understand you had some pretty amazing accomplishments. I'd heard you were, uh, I mean, you had the opportunity to work for two different Fortune 50 companies. I'd kind of be interested in knowing about that. You've been involved in four different startups, I believe. You've also served as a, a VC, so you've been on the other side of the table. And uh, I had talked with you a couple of weeks back, and you referred to yourself as an odd duck. So I thought before we kind of, yeah, right, before we dive in, I wanted to see if you could share with our listeners a bit about your own maybe personal background and what drives you. And... I also learned that you really started your career as an engineer operating underwater robots in oceans around the world. So uh, what took you from that to forming the Business Thinking Institute in Princeton? Well, I guess the, the simplest answer is I have a restless mind. <laughs> so uh, if it's not interesting, I move to the next thing, you know. So I'm constantly looking for interesting things to do, interesting things to think about. So, so, so the odd duck comes from, you know, Somehow, from a fairly young age, I have this uh, uh, interesting ability to connect dots that most people don't see. And uh, I'm able to synthesize. You talk to me for half an hour, and I can summarize it in two sentences. Uh, don't ask me how I do it. It just happens. <laughs> I wish I knew. Then I could package it. Um, now I've done a range of things. You know, I... I uh, undergrad was mechanical engineering. I have a master's, a very odd one, in underwater robotics. Right. Long before uh, robotics became sexy. I've, uh, but I couldn't find enough jobs because they were all in the oil industry. So I then uh, transitioned into mobile robots that work in factories, in uh, warehouses, the kind Amazon uses these days. Right. Except I designed one that was nicknamed the Ram Mobile. In 1989, uh, then... Uh, and what did that Ram-mobile do? Ram-mobile. That was uh, for uh, 
material handling. It moved uh, pallets, uh, uh, you know, off the racks and around the warehouse at the U.S. Air Force facility in Alameda, California. Oh, are the, and they're still in use now? That I don't know. It's been a while. Okay. But uh, I, I, I've designed several robots like that. I had that, and I designed one to handle 50-inch uh, paper rolls for Eastman Kodak in a completely dark room. Mm -hmm. That was installed in Rochester, New York. Um, then I subsequently moved to the Boeing company. And there I conceived and built a robot to assemble the Boeing 777. Uh, we built a prototype, but it uh, went and got $30 million, but uh, it didn't uh, take off. And then I built one for the 757, which is no longer in production. Then uh, after... Uh, at MIT, I designed a a robotic assembly line to build AT&T cell phones or Lucent cell phones, right. and the old cell phones. So this was what is called a lot size of one assembly line, where I think there were there was one phone coming off the line every ten seconds, and each phone could be different from the next one. So I could have a you know a pink uh, you know cover with uh, you know white buttons and the second one could be a green cover with the yellow buttons and the third one could be something else with some other feature changed. And it would all happen on the fly in 10 seconds apart. Must have been years ago. Why yeah, that? that was back in 97. Yeah, because today every phone is black or white or gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we thought there was a need for, uh, that's called a lot size of one. And that's a concept that came out of MIT where everybody could have a custom phone based on what they uniquely wanted. Uh, but anyway, so, so it went on. Then I went to work for Lucent. I worked for Carly Farina two times. I uh, was one of five people who developed international strategy for Lucent. Uh, I was responsible for uh, the UK, which is British Telecom, France Telecom, and Deutsche Telecom. So I used to go to Germany every three weeks. So did a lot of traveling. Then I worked, I was the head of strategy and marketing for a $4 billion business unit at Lucent. And uh, that Lucent started going down. I left, I became a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. And then uh, that didn't pan out because we made one really bad uh, investment. So how long did you attempt that? Well, that was about a year and a half. We made one very bad investment that uh, pretty much used up all the money in the plant. So then I started, I tried my first startup, didn't get off the ground. Second one did really well. And that's when I ended up in Money Magazine as the comeback kid. And I used to show up in all kinds of magazines back then, Fortune, CFO Magazine, a whole bunch of magazines on globalization. And then I did my third startup and then I just wound that down. Now I'm on my fourth one. It's always an interesting journey. So, so, so now it's uh, what excites me now, I figured out along the way, is um, you have to do something that serves a larger cause. And that gives you something compelling to wake up every morning to want to work on, right. as opposed to, I want to make another $100,000. Right. Because once you make the $100,000, what are you going to do next? What's your encore? And I figured out that, that out from a personal experience. Uh, Many years ago, I, um, I, I decided to go for my second master's. And when I applied, I applied to six schools and got into four of them. I'm sure you can relate to this. Right. So I got into uh, MIT, University of Chicago, Cornell, and Columbia. 
and I had to decide which one to take. And uh, I took MIT, and then I said, I need to be psyched that I will be capable and be able to excel when I get to MIT. As you know, that's kind of a doubt that lingers in everybody's mind, you know? Am I good enough, you know? How will I survive? How will I excel in a place like that? Because, you know, you're not one smart guy, you're just surrounded by a lot of scary smart people. Right. Um, so I said, I'm going to climb a mountain. I look. I, I used to live in Seattle working for Boeing. I looked up, I saw Mount Rainier, which is, I think, 14,410 feet. And I said, I'm going to climb that. So, I mean, it's not like I could climb it the next day, right? I wasn't fit enough. So I uh, practiced. I climbed Mount St. Helens, the, you know, the volcano that erupted in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Then I went south and I climbed Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain in the lower 48. And then I went and climbed Mount Rainier. So mission accomplished. And do you know how many mountains I've climbed since then? None. Zero, exactly. <laughs> so the thing is, the key to setting goals is to set them in a way that it is something you're passionate about. And, you know, the, the journey of, of climbing should be what you excel at and what gives you enjoyment. If it's just one mountain, you climb that, and what's next? There's no encore. Same thing that I found in business. If you say, I want to make a million dollars, and you make the million, what are you going to do next? So unless you keep, in other words, everybody's got a thermostat, a success thermostat, if you will. And everybody sets it at a certain level. And if you don't constantly reset it, meaning raise it, you will hit a wall. And you'll be wondering, why did I hit a wall? unbeknownst to you, it's your reptilian brain that's holding you back. Yeah, but, you know, I want to think about this mountain climbing uh, analogy, maybe. I mean, you, you were climbing these mountains, you, you, I thought of, if I understood you correctly, uh, to prove something to yourself before you went off to MIT. Is, is, that, is that right? Correct. It was a metaphor. It was a metaphor. Well, maybe, but there's always more mountains to be climbed, uh, why, why did you just stop with the conveniently located ones and not, not continue on and say, hey, I've, I've now conquered these three, now let's go after the big ones? Two, two very simple reasons. One is it was entirely done as a metaphor. So if I can climb Whitney, climb Rainier, I can you know, do well at MIT. Okay? And I climbed it. So I said, okay, so I'm all set. So in my head, I can do well at MIT. Okay? Second thing is, the next biggest mountain to climb, uh, in, in, in the next higher peak in North America is Mount McKinley in Alaska. Uh, Alaska. We call it Mount, we call it Denali today, right? Correct, Mount Denali. You're absolutely right. So that Denali is over twenty thousand feet, and the success rate is extremely low. And now I was already getting ready to go to MIT, so I wasn't about to put that on hold to go climb a mountain. So I had my priorities right. <laughs> For me, that would have been the mountain to climb just before final exams. Uh, <laughs> so you you went you were at MIT. I guess you were at the Sloan School there, getting a master's, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. an MBA. Yeah. And was it directly after that that you created the Business Thinking Institute? What happened to you next? No, no. Then I went to Lucent Technologies, where I worked for Carly. I did that uh, for four or five years. Okay. Then I went to Silicon Valley, I was a VC. Okay. And then after Silicon Valley, I started my first company or tried to start my first company in California, which didn't take off. 
then I came to uh, move to New Jersey, and that's when I started the second one, and then the third one, and then the fourth one is uh, the Business Thinking Institute. Okay, okay. So this something's interesting to me uh, for a moment. We might want to touch base on is uh, the failure. Um, you know, the failure, mm-hmm. uh, m- maybe financially, emotionally, of the mm-hmm. venture capital. Um, attempt and and then starting a, another business and you know it's a failure how how did you deal with those and still you know not just hand in the towel and go work for another fortune 50 or 500 company but still drive on and have that entrepreneurial spirit see uh you asked two questions one is about see i have failure ways there are two failures one is the failure um in the vc the vc fund Okay, that one I think I dismissed it and said that's because of you know rest of the team you know it wasn't me you know um, so I kind of dismissed it I didn't take it to heart but when my third venture failed I had poured in a lot of money a seven figure sum of personal money and it failed that was a very very humbling experience mm-hmm. because I'm like. Me failed can't happen. I just succeeded because I know I, I succeeded and I was in Money Magazine, Fortune, blah blah blah, etc. Right? Couldn't happen to me. Right. And so I tend to ponder on one problem every year, which I call my hard thinking problem. So I made this my hard thinking problem, and I thought about it. Uh, usually, I crack it in about a week, week to ten days. I crack these things. And this one went from a week to two weeks to four to six to eight. I had no answer. I talked to all the experts. And uh, this one was a personal mission. I need to figure out what happened. And I was very humbled by it because a lot of things changed, you know, financially, professionally, a lot of things changed. But at this point, I had to figure out why, and I had to prove that I could do it over again the right way, okay, or mend things and do it. And that's what I figured out. And I figured out something very surprising. When people fail, as I did the first time at the VC fund, most people say, you could have succeeded if only you had X. And that's human nature. If only you had the right amount of capital, if you only had the right amount of tech, right technology, if only you had the right team, if only you had the right marketing plan, whatever it is, right? Right. But, and the common theme I found there is, one, they, they all say that you lack something. And two, everything that they say you lack is external to you. And that's what didn't make sense to me because I said, yeah, capital, I could have had more money, but I don't know that that would have made the big difference. I don't think. Uh, technology, yeah, same thing. People, yeah, same thing. I had good people. I had 40 people then. Um, so then uh, suddenly week nine, something hit me and I did uh, inversion thinking. I said, what if it is not something I'm lacking, but something I have? And what if it is not external, but something internal? Is there something that I have within me that caused me to fail? It was a completely contrarian way of looking at things. The moment I asked that question, it brought my focus to answering that question. And boom, 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 I got four reasons that popped up right away. And then I started to talking to some more people, people in business school, consulting firms, etc. And uh, two more popped up, and then it came up to nine. 
Then I said, uh, I got to figure, I need to validate this. And that's the engineer in me. So then I went and did a survey of 320 business people and uh, put all of these as proxy questions. You know, um, that is these uh, issues that I had uh, identified in nine of them. They've subsequently grown to 14. Uh, but I put those together, administered to 320 people, including 75 millionaires and one billionaire. And for those of you who are statistically inclined, it had a Cronbach Alpha of 0.8. And this was a survey I put together in about an hour. So that told me that there was something that I had figured out in there that was powerful. And that became the basis of the Business Thinking Institute because it taught me two very basic things which are, which are absolutely important for every human being, okay? Which is one, the biggest reasons why people do not succeed is because they inflict failure on themselves. You're saying, wait a minute, you're saying people are trying to succeed and they're fa inflicting failure? That's absolutely what happens. And these, these uh, nine and then 14 factors that I mentioned, I call those the silent killers of success. Yeah, but can we pause for a second here? Because it seems like the big thinking exercise you were doing was to find out what it is about uh, why that business failed and looking for something in, within you that create, created the failure. But when right. you were talking earlier about the venture capital uh, endeavor, you wrote that off as something external to you. It was somebody, you know, it could have been other people, it wasn't you. So why is it you didn't do that exercise? Oh, I tried to blame other people the second time around. But it didn't make sense to me. You know, I, I looked and I looked for people to blame. I couldn't find people. Then I tried to blame uh, inadequate capital, uh, uh, you know, inadequate uh, new tech uh, technology, except all of those other things I mentioned. All of those could have been contributing factors, but they didn't account in my mind for the totality of the failure. They, they weren't big enough to cause the implosion that happened. And 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 the silent killers are very simple and once i tell you what they are they may seem very obvious to you so the first thing that popped into my head was i presume that because of my background which we already talked about and because i had just succeeded in my last venture i was automatically going to succeed and there were many basic things i was overlooking or ignoring because i said yeah i know what to do you know big deal those came back and bit me in a big way is it something, these, these silent killers, are these things that every business person has within them? They just need to recognize these? Correct. Well, it's not even business. Many of these are even uh, common for all people. So for, I'll give you a couple of very, very simple examples. You may have a certain degree. I mean, you can relate to this. You can have a certain education. You may have a certain pedigree. You may be from a certain family, a certain town, certain ethnicity, certain race. Pick whatever you want. If you think that will that it will fundamentally ensure your success, you have a fundamental flaw in your thinking. Mm -hmm. You know that, yeah, right? Of course. But when you go through it and when your head is big, you don't stop and say, my head is big. It's kind of like the emperor has no clothes. And nobody around you, particularly ones who are 
you know, working for you, whose livelihood depends upon you continuing to fund it, none of them are going to tell you that the emperor has no clothes. You have no clothes on. So they all kept fostering it, and I was too caught up in my own head to see it. So this is a matter of just becoming humble. Well, no, see, this here I made a very interesting and important distinction. See, everybody thinks that the opposite of arrogance is humility. I think that's absolutely wrong. Most people I know who are humble, okay, tend to also be, most of them tend to be ignored by people as being, yeah, whatever, big deal. It's only the few that are humble, like Mahatma Gandhi was humble. But how many people do you know like Mahatma Gandhi? How many people pay attention to people who are that humble? Even Mahatma Gandhi was not humble. What I figured out was rather simple. It is not necessarily necessary to be humble, but it is absolutely necessary to be not arrogant. Lacking arrogance is more important for success than having humility. Because if you lack arrogance and you're not humble, you end up in one very simple space. You're a confident person. And confidence is fundamental to success. I got you. I'll give you one very simple example. I spoke to a group of 200 people about three months ago. And I said, how many of you want to be millionaires? Raise your hand. Out of the 200 people, most of them, more than 90% of them raised their hand. I said, next, I want you to be really honest with yourself because you're not going to impress me because I don't even know who raised their hand or who did The next question, I want you to be honest and only raise it, raise your hand, if you truly believe in this next statement. How many of you believe that you will truly succeed in making a million dollars? Most of the hands did not go up. Very few people's hands went up. The difference between the first question and the second question was I weeded out all the people who lacked confidence. So is it without that confidence that those people would not achieve it? Or do you think maybe they were just being humble and they were... No, no, no. See, this is where people think keeping their hands down is humility. I think, personally, I think that's stupidity, you know? Because if you're confident, raise your hand. What, what, are the, what is somebody going to say? Uh, Steve raised his hand. He's an arrogant guy because he thinks he's going to make a million dollars. They're going to say, wow, Steve's my hero. He thinks he can make a million bucks. Let me go talk to him and see what he figured out that I don't know. Well, maybe maybe they're, uh, they're realistic that life throws things at you and there are chances that uh, right. probabilities that you won't make it. And they just didn't want to be seeming arrogant about it. Well, that's rationalization. But I'll, I'll tell you something I figured out. I figured out a little, little uh, acronym that I put together in my head okay. based yeah. upon my 30 years of experience on what it takes to succeed. Mm-hmm. It's an acronym called CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B. Unless you have a commitment about what you want to do, it doesn't matter what you do, right? If you say, I'm gonna play tennis today and volleyball tomorrow and basketball the next day and something else, you know, you, you won't even become a decathlete, you know? Right. You, you'd be a jack of too many trades. So you have to make a commitment. Second thing is you need to have the confidence. So. Part of the confidence is you may not have, nobody has all the skills they need to succeed. You know that. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. knows that. But if I don't have it, I'm going to go and figure out how to do it. That's fundamental to success. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's the C. Commitment and confidence. L is a leveraging our strengths. 
most people go around and say, you know, when I was young, I was very good at people, uh, talking to people. You know, my, even my graduate advisor used to say, Ram can sell ice cubes to Eskimos. Mm -hmm. Okay? But then I said, I'm good at that. Let me set that aside. And then I went and worked on all the things I was not good at. And this is true for a lot of people. They tend to go work on their weaknesses while ignoring inherent strengths that they have. So I found that the people who are successful, I've interviewed over 150 people. People who are successful tend to focus on what their strengths are. Second, or the third thing, the I, is the ones who are successful go figure out what their strengths are and they figure out how to increase their strengths. Because if that's your, you know, your, your uh, what is that, uh, your, uh, uh, the cow that has milk, or what is the right analogy? There's something like that. You know, you're, you're, you know what I mean? It's, 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 the, it's the key thing that helps you to succeed. It's something you're good at. Milk it. That's the I. Then the reason why many people fail is another little thing that I figured out. Many people fail because of certain fatal weaknesses they have. But many of these weaknesses are, let's say that you're a very arrogant guy, okay? People around you may notice it, but nobody's gonna come and tell you, Steve, you're arrogant. Nobody's gonna do that. I, I, I remember I was, I was at a stage when I did that and I, I was really shook one day when my mother told me, I knew you were, but I was not comfortable coming coming and telling you that because you were so arrogant at that time, okay? So we all have very, what I call fatal weaknesses. You need to identify them because you tend to hide them from everybody. Some people may notice it, but here's the key thing. You hide it so well, we all hide our weaknesses so well that we shove it into some dark place which even we don't see. So if you don't recognize that it's a weakness, chances are you'll never work on eliminating them or managing them. That becomes your detriment. Once that happens and it keeps popping up, let's say you get angry very quickly, keeps popping up. Unless somebody experiences your anger or is the subject of your anger, you get angry and right. some guy says, oh, this guy is a, you know, yeah. an ass. I'm never going to deal with him again. And right. you keep burning right. enough bridges, you're going to go down the tube. So the M in climb is manage weakness. Minimize or eliminate those weaknesses. Okay. Yeah. Then the, the, the last thing, the B, is uh, the, the most successful people I have seen, once they, some, they figure out something that works, they quickly go and find something that else that could also work, and another thing that could work, and another thing. And they quickly build momentum. Remember, success comes in threes or fives, whatever is your favorite uh, uh, you know, saying. And uh, if failure comes, you know you, you find that you also typically go downhill fast. So these people who climb, if they see success, they quickly figure out how to stack. It. They stack successes in order to build momentum. And once you have momentum, then you know once the train is moving, everybody and their brother wants to get on a moving train because most of the other people are still trying. They haven't yet committed. They haven't yet figured out how to leverage their strengths or want to leverage their strengths. They are not focused on minimizing or eliminating fatal weaknesses. But your train is moving. You go, 
let's jump on stage track. So you'll get more people supporting you. Once that happens, it becomes a positive reinforcement loop. Now, so what was interesting to me is my natural inclination uh, would be if I felt I was weak in an area is to go learn more about it and try to improve that weakness, uh, remove that weakness and fill mm-hmm. the gap. You're, if I understand you, you're suggesting rather than focus on that, maybe acknowledge you have weaknesses, maybe don't suppress it, but look at your strengths and build on your strengths, uh, as you said, you know, milking those. So Correct. what? So is the idea then if I have weaknesses, which may not be character flaws, it just may be I just don't have the, the knowledge, the expertise, uh, a passion in a particular area, I should delegate that or bring on people who have those as strengths and just surround myself with, with people with strengths for... Bingo. Because, see, see, the moment I say you have to manage your weaknesses, you know, management could be, you know, I'm not good at math, I'll get somebody who's good at math around me. I'm not good at uh, execution, I'll get somebody good at execution around me. If you can recognize what your weaknesses are, most people are smart enough to figure out how to patch that hole. But mm-hmm. many people kind of sweep it under the rug, and that's when they get into trouble. Yeah. You know, when you were, we were talking about arrogance earlier on, I... Uh... Back in the 90s, when I had my architectural firm, I instituted a 360-degree employee review program where everybody really reviewed everyone, uh, and we did this once a year. And so it was my first time where I was being anonymously reviewed by my staff, the people who were working in my company. Uh And, you know, we have this impression of how we come off, you know, what we think people might think of us, but it was Uh truly enlightening for me to see what uh, the folks at my company thought of me. Some uh, were, and, and they all knew it was an anonymous poll. I had designed a software uh, review program that made sure it was anonymous. And and uh, uh, some people were uh, pretty milk toast in their, mm-hmm. recommend, you know, in their comments, but other people were just brutal. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until I was like holding a mirror up and seeing myself for the first time that I recognized, you know, I think that really is probably the way that I, I'm coming off. And that's not what I thought I was. That's not what I intended. And I had to really work on my uh, personality at the time. Uh, because it was the first time that somebody, you know, said, you know, you're arrogant, right? And mm. and uh, I'd never thought of myself being that way uh, towards that person before. But uh, truly, they mm-hmm. felt that. So I had to, I had to, I had to modify my behavior. Is that the right approach there? <laughs> well, well, first of all, hats off to you, because you were more enlightened uh, 10 years ago than I was. Okay? See, the typical behavior that most people who are listening will typically you know, quickly relate to is, if I say, Steve, you're an arrogant guy. First thing is, how dare you say I'm arrogant? Who the hell are you? Blah, 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 blah. Right? That's typical reaction. When you really think about it, that's a defensive mindset, okay? Because that person may be judging you, but what you're doing is you're throwing it right back at them. This is not a pissing contest. This is a contest on, you know what? What can I learn about myself? How can I understand myself better? And how can I improve myself so that I become more valuable? Because if I become more valuable, people want to come to me. They want to work with me. They want to work for me. They want to invest in me. You know, 
Well, that's the so whole. It's the point. difference between a closed mindset and an open. Make sense? Yeah, but that—that that was the whole purpose of a 360 review. Is you are wanting to know this, you are wanting to improve and learn from this. I think the typical reviews, like for example, in in our company here today, it's really an employee review. You know, they sit down in front of their manager, and it's a very one-sided review. Uh, I do wish we would. Uh, institute a 360 review here as well because uh, uh, you know I think we would all you know we're a much bigger company now we're about 225 people here now it's it's just we would all grow and learn and improve if if we could hear uh, an unbiased uh, opinion of what our colleagues all think of us but yeah, yeah I, I don't I wouldn't commend me for it I, uh, you know it's I we did this because we wanted to we wanted to change we wanted to grow that's See, see, there's a very, here's another different tangential take on what you just said. If you want to have more followers, wouldn't you want to know if your current followers like working with you or not? Because you can say, I have 20 followers, I'm going to make it 100. Mm -hmm. What if you take this function, which is 20, times 5, which is 100? Do you really want 5 times the dysfunctionality? Right. Right. The only way you get feedback is if you're open to it and you listen to people. Yeah. And I wish I had, you know, this is what, uh, who is this? Uh, I forget who it was. A famous philosopher once said that youth is wasted on the young. Mm -hmm. and, and I was talking about it yesterday with somebody. If I knew 20 years ago what I know now, I would be a much better person. Sure. But plan B is I'm glad that I know now. Because I'd rather figure out how to have a better life and do better from now forward. You know, yeah, that's better better than a lot of other people who are still going around uh, trying to figure things out. Right. Maybe uh, a little change here. You, you know, when we spoke earlier, uh, you talked about this concept of business thinking, and mm -hmm. my first <clears throat> pardon me, my first thought was. You know, anybody who opens business, who, who decides to, you know, they're, not, they have, they're an entrepreneur, they create their own company. I would have thought that that person, by default, would be thinking like a business person. But that turned out not to be, not to be the truth. It's, um, so I was wondering if maybe you could dig in a little bit there about, because, because a, lot of, a lot of the people we work with, they're, prof they're professional service providers. We work with a lot of architects and engineers or lawyers you know, accountants, people who are like functional experts. And they are, they're opening a business just because they want to practice that skill they have, that they love, you know, their passion, you know, providing design services or legal services. But they're really not business thinking. They're, uh, they're missing something. And so I was wondering if you could touch uh, on that, because I think that's something that our, our listeners would really be interested in, in having maybe that mirror put up in front of them and showing them that they are in business and indeed they need to be thinking like a business person. See, I'll give you, you asked two different questions, I'll answer both of them. See, one is what I found, um, you know, having been a VC, having lived in the Valley, I still talk to lots of entrepreneurs, business people. Most people get into business accidentally. They don't mean to be business people. You know, many people become entrepreneurs these days because it's sexy. Uh, they get a CEO card. It says, you know, CEO, you know, mm -hmm. Rama here. It's like, wow, you know, I'm a big guy. I can go handing out. 
or they love a certain craft. Maybe you know your accountant loves accounting, and he says somebody comes and says, "Hey, can you take over my accounting on an outsourced basis?" You got one. Then he knows a couple of other people who come. Next thing you know, he's now in the accounting business. But his true passion, his true desire, is to do accounting, not be in the accounting business. There's a big difference. I'll give you a classic example. If you're listening to this, and if you do things for your clients and give it away for free, you say, you know what? I know, I know what needs to be done. I know that we didn't put it in the bid. I'm going to do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. I'll send you a certificate for being this good-hearted guy. But that's not business thinking. Okay? So now let me talk to you about thinking and then business thinking. See, thinking is whatever you focus on or whoever you focus on. You think of somebody, you think of something. And the simplest and most common way people focus on something is when you ask yourself a question or somebody else asks you a question. So the first question that you ask uh, directs your focus and your thinking. I'll give you an example. Let's say you go into a crowded mall and you see many people of different ages. One person could look at the crowd and simply complain, oh my gosh, there are so many people in this goddamn mall, you know, it's overcrowded. The second person may comment that the majority of the people are teenagers, okay? There's nothing wrong with these two people or their comments. The third person notices that the teenagers are not holding any purchase merchandise and they're only there for the opportunity to meet other teenagers and hang out, okay? But then there's a fourth person who sees all of this and listens to these descriptions and says, wait a minute, these people are coming here to hang out with each other and they seek entertainment as a group. Can I start a business in this mall because the teenagers are coming here anyway? And is there a way I could make money off it? Is this last person a bad person? No, but the last person is the only one who says, how can I provide something of value? This is not about making money. Firstly, it's about how can I provide something of value for which I will get compensated? Well, they see an opportunity. Yes, opportunity, but it's an opportunity to provide value. If I come and reach into your pocket and take your wallet and $100 in it, that's stealing. I haven't provided any value to you. If I come and polish your shoes and say five bucks, I've provided the value of polishing your shoes and I got $5 for it. All this person did was these teenagers are coming to the mall, they're looking to socialize with fellow teenagers and they're looking for entertainment and I'm gonna come up with a concept and I'm gonna put a store wherever that store is and I'm gonna provide this and they're gonna pay me for it and I'm gonna make a profit. But that, So that's that's a person who I, I would gather, <clears throat> pardon me, is, is a person who's has a business thinking mind, but I'm, I'm looking at it as a person who has a very particular skill that maybe they walk into that mall and see all that activity going on, but their skill, you know, maybe they're just an, an engineer, right? Maybe their skill doesn't belong in that mall. So. You're absolutely right, but let me direct you to one thing I said earlier. So you could be an engineer, you could be an accountant, you could be a consultant, pick whatever you want, whoever you are listening to this. Mm -hmm. When you go into a situation that you typically run into, or you run into a new situation, remember I told you the first question you ask is what directs your focus and thinking? Do you say, 
Gee, how many teenagers are here? You could go off in a different place. There may be 27 teenagers, and you could look at uh, how many men, uh, how many boys, how many girls. You can go off on a different thing. On the other hand, say, I see a lot of uh, teenagers. This is just loud thinking, right? Is there a business angle to having so many teenagers in the mall who are looking for social interaction and entertainment? That's a question. And the person who asks a question like that has the business thinking, but that because that leads to a potential business opportunity, which he still have to figure out, and he could get revenues and he could make a profit. So that first question that you ask yourself, what goes through your head as soon as you see a situation, is what directs your thinking. And people who have business thinking tend to direct them towards what is the business opportunity here. So how do you discern which things you're looking at merit that exercise versus turning around, walking out of the mall, and going to the park to see if there's opportunities there? See, I'm going to give you a glib answer. Um, that's an individual choice. Everybody needs to be trained for that. Everybody needs to be trained for that. So, like, I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. Let's say you buy, you just went and bought a brand new car, and let's say it is white. Okay? Mm -hmm. When you start driving, what do you suddenly not start noticing all around you, suddenly? There are lots of white cars around you now. Okay? okay. Because that's now your focus, right? So the people who have business thinking have chosen. Remember, we go back to climb, right? They've made a commitment. They have chosen to focus on business opportunities wherever they go. I'm sure you've met people at parties. You go talk to them and say, my gosh, you know, it took me a long time, you know, like uh, I had to go, you know, find parking and, you know, it took me 30 minutes to find a spot. And this guy is thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can write an app to help this guy find parking next time. Yeah, and you know we, what? We, we've all fantasized about that, right? Correct. But that's business thinking. That's business thinking. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, here's a very simple thing. Stay right there. If you only asked it once a year, you're, you're not much of a business thinker. But if that kind of question pops through, remember, questions direct focus, direct, direct thinking, right? If that kind of a question keeps popping up in your head every day, multiple times, you cannot but be successful in business. So I, I hear you, and I, I'm on that train. My, my question to you is how do you take people who are already in business Let's say they're successful in their minds that they have a company that they've imagined having, they have uh, the revenues that support the lifestyle that they want. Uh, it's not necessarily a, uh, a business that might be a saleable business because that's not the way they perceived it. And they're, mm -hmm. and they're, and they're doing the work that they love to do. But they're not, they're not really looking around them at the world, at these potential opportunities to bring value uh, to people who, they, they kind of just go through it oblivious. So is there a problem with that? It, maybe that's okay for some businesses, no. but does every no. business need to have business thinking? Everybody, every business needs to have business thinking because everybody thinks that business thinking is about making money and gouging people off of money. No. The fundamental basis of business is how can I add value? And 
it's a compound sentence in that how can I add value and get paid for it, okay? If I come and polish your shoes in the earlier example, why would you expect that I would polish your shoes for free? That's no, your problem, not mine. Yeah, right? yeah. Not, I don't mean it that way. I mean, there are people, let's just say they are an architect who is very content in their practice they are doing the same thing. It's almost like uh, Groundhog Day for them, right? Mm -hmm. Because their clientele keeps coming back for the same kind of product from them. They design the... It's, it's just... Uh, it's not really uh, a challenging business, but it is a functioning business at sure. base level. Uh, there really doesn't... There really isn't much business thinking going on there. It's just in repeat mode. Um, it, it, okay, this, uh, this is another uh, misnomer that many of us carry, and I carried it for a long time, okay? People think that business thinking always means more money, okay? Business thinking is about having a successful business. If I'm growing a business, my focus is on revenues. Somebody else may say the most important thing is I love what I do as an architect. My singular focus, the most important thing to me in my business is that I have delighted customers. And if that's how they measure the value that they provide, they're being successful. There are a group of companies like this that exist in the world. There is actually an organization uh, based out of uh, Dallas called the Small Giants. Uh, Paul heads that up. Paul and then... Um, um, God, I forget. I've, I've been to the Small Giants World Summit in Germany. So there are people who thoroughly enjoy what they do. They are not looking to grow their revenue. They define success in business differently than just top line growth or bottom line growth. Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, and those yeah. are the people that I'm talking about. Well, yeah. See, who, who? See, the thing is, who are you or me to say that? their measure of business success is wrong. Success, as you know well, is individual. Each person defines what success means to them. Like I was pointing out, it could be revenue, it could be profitability, it could be number of customers we added, it could be number of customers you delighted today, you know? Right. Whatever, however you do. And the difference between the classic growth story where they're focused on top line, bottom line, and the small giants group I pointed out, is the small giants focus on non-financial metrics. It's not that they're trying to lose money. They want to make money and they charge well, they make a profit. They have profitable businesses. But they're focused more on, am I adding 10 more people in this trade? Let's say you're a carpenter. Can I create, am I creating 10 more carpenters every year? That's their def definition of success. Mm -hmm. And there are many people like that. You know, how many people did I you know, how many jobs did I create this year? That could be another definition of success. So it depends upon the individual. And I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't, I would never venture to tell this person who's, who defines success differently that they're wrong. But keep one thing in mind, though. I also know small giant businesses where they have taken the foot off the pedal or reduced the importance or think they eliminated the importance of revenue and profitability. If you don't have revenue and if you don't have profits, very simple. You won't be in business very long. 
So, so the thing is, so the point to, to kind of summarize it, you need a money focused business thinking in order to survive as a business because otherwise you don't have the revenues or the profitability, right? You could end up making a dollar profit, that's your choice. But you need to have the revenue and the cash flow. But you don't need you you don't have to define business success only on those financial terms. It could be on other terms that you choose. That's entirely up to you. Right. So when you have to have a money focused business, that's that's where I find a problem here because uh, the principles in these generally these small businesses, small and mid-sized businesses, aren't money-focused. They're client-focused. So mm -hmm. is it important that they have people in the company who are money-focused? Maybe that's one of their weaknesses? It could be. See, one of the you bring up a good point. One of the essential elements of business success, and business success to me, most fundamental thing is business viability. Will you be around tomorrow? You know, is do you have sufficient revenues to be able to meet your expenses? Okay, and generally, if all you do is generate enough revenues to meet your expenses exactly, you'll never have any money to invest in R and D or improvement or any of those things. So essentially, you'll have to have revenues plus profitability. How much is up to you? If you don't have that. It's just logical that the business will die. It's a matter of time. So if you don't have it, you need to surround yourself with somebody who is. Right. So I'll give you one, one other very classic thing that everybody can see around them. And I know this personally because I talk to a lot of MIT alums every week. And guess what most of them do? Most MIT guys are in technical roles. Right. right. And it's the other guys who are business-minded who tend to be the CEOs, okay? And you know who makes more money between the two? Yeah. Always the business-minded person. So what I suggest to your listeners is whether you're an engineer or an architect or an accountant, if you add business thinking to that, you will become much more valuable yourself. Right. Or you can keep more of the value for yourself. So Steve can make more money because he's got engineering thinking, uh, engineering skills and engineering thinking, engineering mindset, plus business thinking. Right. This, this reminds me, in 1993, I opened my architectural firm, and somebody pointed me to uh, Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth. Mm -hmm. And that's where I realized and I really saw myself as... Uh, uh, the technical person, you know, I, I didn't have that business mindset and uh, I realized that I needed to either develop it myself, which at the at the cost of doing what I love to do, which is why I opened the business, or find somebody to join me on my venture who had that particular mindset. Uh, yeah. So, Ram, I, I have to be respectful of your time. I know we've just ran two minutes over. I think you said you had a, a meeting coming up. So... Uh, I probably shouldn't uh, exploit you any any longer. I, I wanted to thank you. It's really been very interesting. Uh, I personally have learned a lot. I hope our listeners have as, as well. Um, for those of you who are interested in learning more about you and, and your Business Thinking Institute in Princeton, what's the best ways for them to get in touch with you? Hey, the best way is, you know, our website is uh, businessthinking, one word, businessthinking.com. 
we are focused on helping individuals succeed in business. Because people always say, go and help company X succeed. It's not company X. It's in, if individuals in there are uh, successful, then the company becomes successful. Um, best way to reach me is info at businessthinking.com. And you know what we focus on is we help people understand, appreciate, and we run a workshop on teaching people how to develop business thinking for greater success. So if you're an engineer, we help you figure out how can you leverage the strengths that you have as an engineer and embrace certain elements of the business mindset to be more successful. Second thing is we help people identify the silent killers they have individually. Each person has some of them and it varies over time. We help you identify those, you know, confidentially of course, and help you to eliminate those in workshops. Third thing we teach is I've found that people always, you know, typically engineers, architects, accountants, these are all people who fall into this category, focus a lot on data and numbers and analysis. But if you go look at the most successful people in business, they are people who combine data and analysis with another X factor, and that's intuition. I actually scrounged around the world and I found a person with whom I've collaborated, and we teach people in two days how to access and use their intuition to make better decisions. So those are the three things we do. And if you want to give me a call, I'm at 609-275-6300 in lovely Princeton, New Jersey. Oh, that sounds great. I, I'm sold. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, again, Ram, it's been a real pleasure. I want to thank you for spending your time uh, and your insights, sharing that with me and our listeners. And uh, I'm going to be looking deeper into the Business Thinking Institute myself. Uh, it's really compelling, and I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Many, many thanks. Thanks for having me. So there you have it. That was my interview with Ram Iyer from the Business Thinking Institute. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did speaking with him. And hopefully you've learned a little bit along the way and might uh, apply some of these principles in your own company. For now, this is Stephen Burns with Disrupting Your Business, and we'll see you next time.